come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. listeners to episode 139 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always i'm your tour guide here of david garrett jr recording out of columbus ohio so for this episode for you here it's probably gonna be a little bit shorter just because with the holiday weekend and everything that i didn't have as much time as i would like to have watched stuff but i do have at least four mini reviews for you so for this episode my featured reviews, though, are going to be The Black Phone. This is from 2021, technically, but because of test audiences enjoying this one, it got pushed into 2022, and that's when it's getting its wide release, so I'm watching it here. And I should also tell you this is a Trek to the Twos number 13. And then the other featured review, I know I had said it was going to be Secret of the Blue Room. That one actually, I realized that there was a remake that was done by Universal that I could find, but I had to purchase a copy of the actual original one which i believe is from germany off of ebay didn't get here in time so i'm pushing that one till next week i've actually already watched it but for the other featured review here is going to be get that girl from 1932 so these are the last ones i needed to watch for that year and then the mini reviews are off for the summer challenge series potentially as i have eight millimeter phantasm the original child's play from 1988 and antichrist don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here for this intro. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over first to my monthly review. So for my monthly review here for the month of June is I watched 37 total movies. 28 of those were horror movies. And six of those are 2022 releases. And my percentage of horror compared to everything else was 75.68%. So the horror movies that I watched during the month are Crimes of the Future, that is here in this year, Santa Sangre, Behind the Mask, The Prey, Legend of Carnactus, The Void, Wild Zero, House, Spring, Ravenous, The Living Dead, They Live in the Gray, Raiga, The Monster from the Deep Sea, Wreck 2, Zombie, The Sixth Sense, The Last Broadcast, Strangers of the Evening, Damien Omen 2, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, Perfect Blue, Mad God, Death Count, I Stand Alone, The Black Phone, Get That Girl, 8mm, Phantasm, and Child's Play, the original one from 1988. 
So for countries represented, there are 12 countries, and that is the United States, Canada, United Kingdom, Greece, Mexico, Italy, Japan, Czech Republic, Germany, Spain, and France. So then for the 2022 watches, I had, as I said, six of them, and that's Crimes of the Future, The Prey, Legend of Carnactus, They Live in the Grey, Mad God, Death Count, and The Black Phone. My oldest watches are all from 1932 with Behind the Mask, The Living Dead, Stranger of the Evening, and Get That Girl. The average year is 1992. The highest rated I cannot reveal, but it is a 9.5. The lowest rated was Raiga, The Monster from the Deep Sea, which was a 4. The average rating is a 7.5. Not on this feed, the only one is House. That was for Movie Club Challenge for the podcast Under the Stairs. So then just to break down the numbers a little bit more here for you, I will start with... The six 2022 watches for this month, in comparison with other years, this is tied for my second highest as 2020, I also had six. Last year and 2019, I had seven, and the lowest was 2018 at three. So I've watched 29 total in the month of June over those years. And then the horror movies, this is actually going to be my, right in the middle there, as the highest was 2019 with 52, last year I had 32, this year 28, 2020 I had 26, and the lowest was 2018 at 25. I've watched 163 horror movies in the month of June. And then for total movies, the highest was 2019 at 53, last year was 33, this year is 37, so this is actually my second highest. And then I had 33 in 2018, which was tied with 2021. And then the lowest was 2020, where I only watched 28 movies. So my average year of everything that I watch in the month of June is 1998, which is actually dead on for this year. My most earliest years were 2018 and 2021, where I was 2002. And then I had 1995 and 2020. 2019 was 1993. For average rating, this is actually just below the total, which was 7.6 for June, as this year and last year were 7.5s. The highest rated year, though, was 2018 at 8.3, 2019 was a 7.8, and then 2020 was a 7.1. So for percentage of horror, this is actually my lowest that I've had, as the highest year was 2019 at 98.11%. And then in 2021, it was 96.97%, and then 92.86% for 2020, and then the lowest was 2018 at a 75.76%, which is bringing down that average as my average of horror that I watch in June is an 87.87% overall. And then just to give you kind of some yearly updates here, 2020, I'm sitting on 34 total horror movies that were released in 2022. That gives me a total of 378 over the last five years. So I'm still on pace. I'm actually kind of a little bit above is that I wanted to at least watch 52 new horror movies. My goal is always 100. So I'm a bit below that, but I do know in October and in December, I'll actually help beef those numbers up a bit. For horror movies, I'm at 173 for 2022. So this one is still kind of on pace here. I do know I'm a little bit below where I wanted to be at for 365, but I've watched 1,652 total horror movies since I've been, you know, keeping track. There are rewatches in there as well, so that just keep that in mind. For total films, I know I'm a bit below my number that I want to be at, but I'm still doing well as I have 243 movies watched. And that means I've recorded that I've watched 2,066 movies over the last five years and everything like that. 
So the average rating right now for this year, I'm at a 1997, which is below the average of 1999, which is just across the board. My average rating for movies, though, is right on pace. I'm at a 7.5, and that is the same thing for the year overall. And then for a percentage of horror, I'm at 71.19%. This is actually below is my average of everything that I watch is a 78.89% overall over the last five years. But again, October will definitely beef that number up, I'm sure. So nothing else I need to get you up to speed with here then for this monthly review. So let me get you over to a brief break before I get you over to those mini reviews. And I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. And for my first mini review on this week is going to be 8mm. This is from 1999. It was directed by Joel Schumacher. It was written by Andrew Kevin Walker. It stars Nicolas Cage, Joaquin Phoenix, and James Gandolfini. This is a crime drama mystery thriller film that I also consider to fall into horror. This is a co-production between Germany and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd with the snuffs being a private investigator is hired to discover if a snuff film is authentic or not. So I remember when this one came out. I would have been about 12 years old and I believe that my father saw this. Now I did actually ask him this weekend because he was visiting and he doesn't remember it. But I know he kept my sister and I from watching this one and having watched it now a couple times... I can see why he didn't want us to watch it just because we have some heavy subject matter here with this like potential snuff film and everything but I actually think it's probably more that my sister and I wouldn't fully appreciate it and fully understand what we are getting here. So the first time I watched this is when I was on the People's Council for the podcast Under the Stairs. Now giving this a second watch is a potential pick for the show. So since that's the case, I think this is an interesting one that I'm glad that I have knocked off my list of having seen. It's an interesting one having Tom, who's portrayed by Cage, as he tries to advocate for this missing girl while he loses his own humanity to solve what happened to her. It raises attention with each new clue he finds and discovers the dark truth of it all. I did want a bit more from the ending, but it's not ruined by anything. I just think it runs a little bit too long. Acting helped to bring the characters to life, so there is a solid cast as well. There's not a lot in the way of effects, but what we got were practical and looked good. The soundtrack fit for what was needed, especially ramping up when the tension does. Despite its dark subject matter, I think this is a solid mystery for fans of the genre as well as non-horror fans. I think this is a good film in my opinion. So I'm not going to give you my rating, but I would highly recommend checking this movie out. It is got some issues, but still worth a viewing at least once if you've never seen it. And then for my second mini-review here on this episode is going to be Phantasm. This is from 1979, written and directed by Don Coscarelli. Stars A. Michael Baldwin, Bill Thornberry, and Reggie Bannister. This is a horror sci-fi film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being a teenage boy and his friends face off against a mysterious grave robber known only as a tall man who employs a lethal arsenal of unearthly weapons. So this is a film that took me a while to see for the first time. I remember when the third film came out in the series and I watched it on the movie channels having no idea about the earlier two. While in college, I got the chance to see the original one, and then again when it came to my local theater on 4K. So in prep for the Summer Challenge series, I watched this with a commentary on of the writer and director Coscarelli, as well as I believe that Baldwin and Angus Scrim were a part of it. So since this is going to be a Summer Series pick, 
this is quite impressive for what Coscarelli had to work with. I thought the story was interesting and it had me wanting more. It has a nightmarish feel to it while is being aided by the score. That is my favorite aspect, actually. The acting isn't great, but it fits. They bring the characters to life with distinct personality. Special credit here to Reggie Bannister and Angus Scrim. It is edited well and moves at a good pace. The effects for this they had to work with were also good. It also has its flaws, but this is a classic. And after multiple viewings, this is still a dang near perfect movie for the budget that they have. Now, I'm not going to give my rating as I was saying here, but if you've never seen this movie or the series, definitely check it out. This one could have been a standalone movie, but the series doesn't necessarily answer questions as it seems to always pose new ones, but there's just some interesting things that it does explore for sure. Then up next for you, I have Child's Play. This is from 1988. This was directed by Tom Holland, and the story is from Don Mancini, and the screenplay was written between John LaFia and Holland. This stars Catherine Hicks, Chris Sarandon, and Alex Vincent. This is a horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, A single mother gives her son a much sought-after doll for his birthday, only to discover that it is possessed by the soul of a serial killer. So this is a movie that I actually covered as a mini-review back in episode number four, which was my winter year-end number one, where I had featured reviews of Dead Snow and Knife Plus Heart. So if you want to get a little bit more in-depth, I would direct you over there, but this is also watched as a potential pick for the Summer Challenge series. But So I'll give you just some basic thoughts. I thought this was good. The concept seems to be a little bit hokey, but I think it works. This is a good supernatural slasher in my opinion. The story is also solid. The editing helps to build tension to a satisfying conclusion. I thought the acting along with the soundtrack helped to heighten and allow people to play it as it should as well. The effects were good as the deaths look real and bring the doll to life. And I may actually watch a commentary this time around and somebody on there was the person who's actually in charge of bringing Chucky to life. And just hearing the different things they had to do there is pretty impressive. I recommend seeing this one. This one isn't as fun as some of the sequels. It is, however, the darkest of them, and for that reason, it is my favorite. So as I said, I'm not going to give my rating here, but I really enjoy Child's Play from 1988. And my last mini-review for this week is going to be Antichrist. This is from 2009. It was written and directed by Lars von Trier. This stars William Defoe, Charlotte Gainsborough, and Storm Akeni Salstrom. This is a drama horror thriller film that is from a co-production of Denmark, Germany, France, Sweden, Italy, and Poland. This is sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being, a grieving couple retreat to their cabin in the woods, hoping to repair their broken hearts and troubled marriage, but nature takes its course and things go from bad to worse. So this is a movie that I randomly checked out originally for Fangoria's Top 300 Horror Movies of All Time. I didn't know much coming in, but I had seen a couple of the writer-director's other movies of Melancholia and Dogville. I knew those ones would looked amazing and probably would have some brutal realism here. Now, I'm updating my review after a third viewing, which was in the theater as part of the Horror 101 series, and I've also given it another one for the potential pick for the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs. And I should also point out here as well that I watched with a commentary on this most recent one as well. So since this could be on the summer series, this is one that I can't recommend to everybody. You have to like art house films, and I, if you like Von Trier, I would say you definitely need to see this one. I've seen his other works, and I could tell that he made this one, but I do have to admit that I'm also a fan of him. 
He does a great job of mixing the drama, psychology, and horror together in this. There is also great acting with a good story. The performances drive it. The editing and music are also good to help the overall feel. I will warn you that there are some graphic violence scenes in here that had me cringing even after multiple watches. If you can't handle that, I would avoid it. But this is just a powerful film dealing with loss and descending into madness. So since I'm not going to give my rating, I will say that if things that I said here tick boxes for you, definitely check this one out. So I'm going to go ahead and do those, get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. I'll be home in the morning. Where are you going? I'm staying over at Susie's tonight. What's new? The flyer. The papers call him the grabber. I wish you wouldn't call him that. You don't actually believe that story, do you? Because he can't hear you, and he doesn't really take kids that safe. Well, isn't that just peachy, King? You need some help? You see that? Yeah. <laughs> Would you hand me my hat? Yes, sir. I am a part-time magician. Are those black balloons in there? Would you like to see a magic trick? I have an announcement to make. One of our students, Benny Blake, was abducted. What if I could help the police find Benny? Doesn't work. Not since I was a kid. I'll scream. I'll scratch your face. This face? Daddy, I had a dream about us. What happened in your dream? He was taken. By a man with black balloons? Yes. We never released those details. And for my first featured review on this episode is going to be The Black Phone. This is technically from 2021, but it's getting its wide release finally here in 2022. This was directed by Scott Derrickson. It comes from the short story of the same name by Joe Hill. And then the screenplay was written between Derrickson and C. Robert Cargill. This stars Mason Thames, or Mason Thames. Not really sure how you pronounce his last name, but he is starring along with Madeline McGraw, Ethan Hawke, and 
Jeremy Davies, E. Roger Mitchell, Troy Rudisil, James Ransone, Miguel Casares Mora, Rebecca Clark, J. Gavin Wild, Spencer Fitzgerald, Jordan Isaiah White, Brady Ryan, Tristan Prevong, Jacob Morin, Brady Hepner, Banks Rapetta, and Parrish Stiekelather. This is a horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.4 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, after being abducted by a child killer and locked in a soundproof basement, a 13-year-old boy starts receiving strange calls on a disconnected phone from the killer's previous victims. So this is a movie that I was excited to see as I have an interesting history when it was supposed to be released but then got pushed back for whatever reason. Going along with that, I enjoy Derrickson's movies, at least the ones that I've seen. It is nice to see him teaming back up with Hawk as well. What I didn't realize was, until closer to the release date, this is based off of a Joe Hill short story. As I'm a fan of what I've read on the limited basis of his, as well as I'm a big fan of his father of Stephen King, and this is one that I haven't read yet, but I believe after I finish the books that I'm reading now, I'm going to pop over to where this short story is at and check that one out. Before I get into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes on some of our key players here, and I'll start with our director of Derrickson. He has 14 movies that he's helmed, and I've seen seven. Out of genre, he did Doctor Strange and The Day the Earth Stood Still. Not a big fan of that second one. In genre, I've seen all of his features that are out. His first was Hellraiser Inferno, then he did The Exorcism of Emily Rose, Sinister, Deliver Us from Evil, and now this. He did do a short called Shadow Prowler that I have not heard of, and he's also doing what I believe is a Stephen King adaptation of The Breathing Method. As a writer, he has 13. Out of genre, it looks like Doctor Strange is the only one that I've seen. In genre, he has seven, and I've seen six. Those are Urban Legends, The Final Cut, Hellraiser Inferno, Emily Rose, Deliver Us from Evil, Sinister 2, and now this, and he also wrote Shadow Prowler. His co-writer of Cargill has eight credits. These two seem to have worked together a lot, as I've seen four of his works. He did Doctor Strange, Sinister 1 and 2, and now this, that I have seen. He also helped with Shadow Prowler as well. Now, I wanted also to glance at Hill as a writer. He has seven works that have been brought to the screen. Five are horror. He did Abraham's Boys in 2009, which I had not heard of. I did see In the Tall Grass that he did with his father. He did the Creepshow animated special, Snapshot 1988, and Fawn. I also know he did Horns that I've read the book for, but have yet to see the movie, but it is on my short list. Moving to our actors, Hawk has 106 works, and I've seen 11. Out of genre, he did The Northman, Training Day, and Gattaca. In genre, he has four. The first was Sinister, then he did The Purge, Regression, and now this. I have not seen Regression, but I have seen the other three. His co-star of Thames has two credits. He was in Boys of Summer, which I had not seen. Last will be McGraw. She has 11 movies, and I've seen four. Out of genre, she was Ant-Man and the Wasp and American Sniper. In genre, she has three. She was in The Curse of La Llorona from 2019, and now this. I've seen both of them. And now she's also in a movie that is upcoming called The Harbinger as well. So that one I will be considering checking out. So then for the movie itself, we are taking place back in 1978. We're at a baseball game where Finney, portrayed by Thames, is on the mound pitching to Bruce, who's portrayed by Prevong. Finney has a good arm and has Bruce down in the count. It doesn't end how our lead wants it to, though, and Bruce is the hero. We see that the latter is a good kid regardless. 
I've said this takes place in the past, and I should point out that we're in Denver, Colorado. In the area, there are a series of boys disappearing. The police do not have any leads, though. Newspapers are dubbing the person that is taking them as the grabber. It sets us up that it is Hawk. He drives a black van and wears different masks. To set up more about our lead, Finney has a younger sister of Gwen, portrayed by McGraw. They live with their alcoholic father of Terrence, who's portrayed by Davies. He is abusive. There is a powerful scene where he punishes Gwen because the police seek him out at work. There's a detective Wright, portrayed by Mitchell, and a detective Miller, portrayed by Rudisil. Now, they're both doing what they can to find the grabber. Gwen tells something to Bruce's younger sister that upsets her. The police want to know how she knows the information that she does because the police haven't released this evidence. Gwen has dreams, and Terrence wants to beat it into her to stop telling people. This family knows tragedy with what happened to Terrence's wife and their mother, and I will just kind of preface here that she committed suicide, but it seems to be she was psychic like her daughter was, and it might have drove her to it. Now, Finney also has to deal with bullying at school. He is friends with Robin, who's portrayed by Mora, who knows how to fight and won't take grief from anyone. When he's taken, it hits even closer to home for Finney. This is until he is taken by the grabber. Now, as the synopsis states, he's kept in a soundproof basement. The grabber brings him food when he can and tells the boy he won't hurt him. There is something off about Hawk, though. What he says and what he does are not necessarily meshing up. Finney also seems to have abilities like a sister. The phone in the basement isn't connected, but it rings. On the other end are the victims of the grabber. They tell him what they know and what they try to do to survive. It is a tightrope that Finney must walk in order to try to get out of the situation. All the while, his sister tries to find him through her dreams. It isn't an exact science, though. So that's going to leave my recap as well as my introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is that I will be seeking out the short story as I was saying is I really kind of want to see what was in that that was brought to the screen and what wasn't. I should point out that my wife, Jamie, also was with me. She was leery, especially with us expecting a child of our own, and I convinced her that it wasn't necessarily the movie that she was expecting, which helped. As I kind of showed her the trailer, I also was relaying what I knew, and I didn't want to play my hand too early as well here, but we both enjoyed this one. With that out of the way, this is an interesting modern gothic story. The ghosts aren't the villains here. They're helping Finney, but they can't come out and tell him things. I thought it was interesting that in death, they don't remember their names. They remember certain things, and that feels like something you'd get with like a Charlotte Bronte story or other writers from that era. I liked even more that they could only tell him what their plans were to survive while they were being kept there. It didn't work out for them as they're dead. Everything that is told to Finney comes into play later, which I thought was excellent writing. That is one of my favorite parts. Where I'm going to go next with the idea of the family. Terrence isn't a bad guy. He's depressed and his way of coping is through drinking. His wife passing away has destroyed him. He abuses Gwen physically. He explains why later. Although I don't agree with him and what he's doing, I understand where he's coming from. I told Jamie during the movie that I was glad that they did this though as it humanizes him. Despite his condition, he loves his children and is trying to protect them. He goes about it in the wrong way. The effects of what he's doing has taken its toll on them. Benny is timid, he lacks confidence, and it he gets him bullied. Gwen, on the other hand, is feisty. She does something in defense of her brother that I wasn't expecting. She won't give up looking for him either. McGraw is great here, as she is quite mouthy. That adds comedy for me, while also being a great performance despite her age. So I want to also shift over here for a minute to the effects. This movie is brutal in its depiction of violence. I don't mean this in a bad way, as it doesn't go over the top. Seeing Terrence hit Gwen with the belt hurt me. 
Seeking out what she does to defend Finny during a fight shocked me, but it also fits. We also have Robin fighting a bully that I wasn't expecting the movie to go to the places that it did there. There are a majority of practical effects, and I was impressed there. We do get a bit of CGI, but that was done quick. There are things with the ghosts as well, which look good. It can be jarring at times, but there are a couple jump scares that got Jamie. I would say the cinematography here is good. We see enough, but we don't linger enough to critique it either. So I will give credit to that for sure. Now to get back to the story here, with the last bit I wanted to go into would be the psyche of the grabber. The movie doesn't delve too much into it, but I think there's enough there that are given to us. Jamie leaned over to me while we were watching this and said she thought he had multiple personalities. And I can see this, and I know one of the major attributes here is that the other personalities shouldn't know each other. At least that's what I've always read or thought that I've like been told about people that have this condition. How the grabber is feeling is reflected in the mask that he wears. I love that idea. There is one that doesn't have a mouth that is indifferent. There is a smiling face which brings Finny food and states that he wants the boy to be able to leave. There is this angry one though that wants to inflict pain. The grabber has a game that he wants to play and it makes him frustrated when his victim won't. This is a heavy subject matter for sure. I think the acting is where I'll go next. I've already said how well I thought Hawk did here. He's actually got a pretty limited screen time. He as a, So like I was actually expecting it to be a bit more, but he does a great job with the time that he's given. I thought that Thames was solid as our lead. He does well in showing us a character and then seeing the effects of his life on it. How that is incorporated to survive as well works for it. McGraw also was good as a sister. It is interesting here that she has a question of faith. And I can relate to that. And I also think it's interesting is that it seems like something I read about Derrickson is that he was quite religious and he might have had the similar things. I know Emily Rose has a bit of religious propaganda in it and it almost seems like he's getting away from that. So, I mean, I don't know enough about this, so don't take anything I've said here with gospel, but that's just kind of what I'm picking up on. Davies is solid as the father. Mitchell and Rudisil were both good as our detectives. I like that we have a cameo by Ransone. I thought all the victims slash ghosts were solid as well. The acting here was good across the board for me. So the last bits before I do some trivia is going to be the filmmaking. I think that the cinematography is well done. I like what they're doing with the credits. It feels a bit like you get with a James Bond film, which are famous for, with giving us images that make sense later. This also feels like it's taking place in 1970, so I give credit to how that was shot. Other than that, I thought the soundtrack worked as well. It isn't the best that I've seen in a Derrickson movie, but it does work. It helps when you need to build tension. How Hawk talks in these different versions of his character, I will give credit to with the sound design as well. Now I have just a little bit of trivia here that I'm going to share from the IMDb page. It does look like the masks were designed here by Tom Savini. And the first time that Thames saw the iconic mask, he was terrified coupled with Hawk's bone chilling performance. Kind of cool there. Derrickson made this project after he left Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness over creative differences. This movie was delayed due to unexpected great preview showings. Once Blumhouse realized how great early reactions were, they gave it a summer release date. That makes sense. Derrickson listed the 400 blows and the Devil's Backbone as major influences. Near the end when Gren is riding her bike in the rain, she is wearing a yellow raincoat that is identical to one that Georgie Denbro wore when he was taken by Pennywise. The stop and go in this movie is called Ellison, which is the name of Hawk in Sinister. That's kind of interesting there. And then both Ethan Hawke and James Ransone were both in Sinister. Oh, and I also wanted to include here, there's some things that are listed in the spoilers that the grabber is 
based kind of loosely on Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, and Dahmer with how they do things. Like, Bundy would use a ruse to lure victims into his car. Gacy would use a belt on his victims. And Dahmer had one victim escape and only to be recaptured. This one has dreams that play a major role. Nightmare on Elm Street is kind of referred to here in some of these things. Gwen being started awake is kind of also a thing that you'd have there. Pink Floyd's on the run plays in this movie. I guess they're also kind of correlating here that in Sinister, Vincent D'Afrio was wearing a Pink Floyd shirt. And since Derrickson did that movie, I think they're kind of correlating there. Whatever horror movie that Finney is also watching the movie, there's a sink that fills with blood. This happens in the book It. I think this is kind of overreaching just a bit here. And I mean, I guess you can also correlate as well that Beverly Marsh had an abusive father and so does Finney. But again, I think that might be a little bit of a stretch, but I still wanted to include it here. So in conclusion, I enjoyed this movie quite a bit. We're getting a modern gothic tale. I like how it sets up Finney and Gwen as well as how it all come back into play later. The acting is good. I like how the story and the writing introduce us to things that come back later. This also explores darker sides of humanity. It also makes me want to read the short story as well. There aren't any glaring issues. This is a solid studio horror movie for me, and I will be re-watching this one before my year end just to kind of see where it'll fall with that second watch. But my rating here for The Black Phone is going to be an 8 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section since this movie is so new. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. to make that 445. Oh, Mr. Gateman, please. I've got to make that. You can't lock me out again. But haven't we met before? Well, your manner is certainly familiar. Anyway, we read the same book. Have you read the one about the little girl and the red ant? No. Very funny. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> oh. Traveling alone? Apparently not. Going very far? No, but don't you think you are? I'm very sorry. I've forgotten that we haven't met. Big pockets. Tractor tells me. On my way to Father Marcus. How interesting. You said your name was uh, Mr. Dale? Bad news? For you, yes. Why, I, uh... If you speak to me again, I'll complain to the conductor and have you put off the train. Why, you I don't care to listen to any explanation. <laughs> I'm awfully sorry, but you don't understand that there's a mistake somewhere. Four forty-five. Both are four forty-five, and left are four forty-five. Left. I've got a high-powered car. I can overtake the train in Moreland. Good, you're wrong. 
And for my second featured review is actually going to be Get That Girl. This is from 1932. This was directed by George Crone. It was written by Charles R. Condon. It stars Richard Talmadge, Shirley Gray, and Fred Malatesta. Now, this also has Carl Stockdale, Lloyd Ingram, Geneva Mitchell, Victor Metzetti, Billy Jones, James Guilfoyle, Lydia Knott, Arthur Metzetti, and Otto Metzetti. I'm assuming there are brothers there. This is an action-adventure crime-horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.3 on IMDb, and there's actually not enough ratings on Letterboxd, but I would say this is hovering about a two-star movie. Our synopsis here is a young girl who is about to receive a large inheritance is abducted to an isolated sanitarium where a crazed doctor is performing strange experiments. So this is a movie that I didn't know about until going through Letterboxd for Horror from 1932. From the looks of it, this is another one that seemed light on the elements aside from the time that it was made. I was able to stream this on YouTube to check it out. Aside from that, I came into this one quite blind. So before I get into the movie itself, I do have just some featured notes, but it's going to be a bit short. I'll start with our director of Crone, who has seven movies. This is the only one that I've seen, and that is in horror. Moving to our writer of Condon. They have 18 credits. It looks like they mostly did war and westerns. In horror, this is the only one that I that they did and that I've seen. To our cast, I'll start with Talmadge. This looks to be a German by birth and then moved to the United States. He did 24 movies. This is my first for him and his only one in horror. I'll get a little bit back to this guy because I think this is kind of a vehicle for him. His co-star of Grey has 41 works. This is her first in genre. She did do the mystery of Mary Celeste. I have not seen or really heard of that one. This is the first thing that I've seen her in. Then our last one will be Melatesta, who I have seen in other things. He has 56 movies, and I've seen three. He was in Modern Times, which is his most popular. This is a Charlie Chaplin film. He was also in Trouble in Paradise, which I actually watched both of those in film class back when I was in college. This is their only horror film as well, though. So to get into this movie here, we jump right in with a car chase where we have Ruth Dale portrayed by Gray, who is trying to get to the train station. After her is a group led by a character played by Stockdale. With him are henchmen of Schultz, portrayed by Metzetti, and then Mike, portrayed by Jones. One of them is pretending to be a woman. With some fancy driving from the taxi, she makes it to the station ahead of the gate being locked. The guys that are after her aren't so lucky. Also arriving late is Dick Bartell, portrayed by Talmadge. He has to jump the fence to get to the train before it leaves. On board, he takes a liking to Ruth. She got a telegram saying that a bodyguard will be waiting for her at the end of the line, so she's on edge and trying to get away from the people following her. Now, she is slated to inherit money, as the synopsis said. Due to this information, she believes Dick is part of the crew that is trying to kidnap her. She does warm to him as they go on. The problem is that the trio also gets on at the next stop. Men working at the train notice Dick bothering her. This group of criminals accuse him, and he's taken off the train in custody. He knows there's something wrong and gives the police a slip. He steals one of their cars to get to the next stop before it is too late. This trio wants the money that Ruth is slated to inherit. They take her to a sanitarium where it's ran by Dr. Sandro Tito, portrayed by Melatesta. The leader says he will keep Dr. Tito away from her if she will sign the money over to him. Now, she refuses. There's only so long this guy can keep Dr. Tito from her. Dick is also limited on time to rescue her, with the police hot on his trail. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap of this movie, as there isn't a lot to the story. 
when I was making sure that I had the right one, I noticed that this was produced by Talmadge, who also starred here. This feels like a movie showcasing him. It looks like back in the day he played in movies as this character where they literally would just change the last name, but the first name was always Dick. He also looked to do stunt coordinating in movies. I would imagine that he did all the stunts himself, and it almost seems like that's what his ploy was, is that he would do these wild different things, and it also was kind of comedy that were mixed in there. So there are some impressive, and there are multiple sequences of that in this movie. I'll give credit for his performance, as he's fine as an actor and his comedic timing was solid. So with that out of the way, there isn't a lot to the story, but what we get is interesting. We have Ruth, who is inheriting money, and this gang wants it. This is a premise we got in Wild West or gangster movies. What I found interesting as well is that also kind of puts it in the horror category with the sanitarium. The leader of the gang's plan is to get her into this place where Dr. Tito works. The movie is pre-code to my knowledge, and this doctor is ruthless. What is interesting is that there is a second movie this year that I'm watching where a doctor is the villain. Dr. Tito isn't in on the plan that the leader is doing outside of that, I guess they're probably giving him a little bit of cash on the side. There is only so much that you can keep the doctor from hurting Ruth and the leader is using this to his advantage. I don't fully remember what the experiment he is doing and what the implications are there, but he is still diabolical. I like the movie is exploring this idea early into cinema. We have scientists like Dr. Frankenstein who are mad trying to succeed. Dr. Tito might be doing something for the good of humanity, but it feels more like he's torturing his patients. There's not much more I can delve into there, so I'll go over to the acting. I've already said that I thought Talmadge was good. Gray is a bit earlier in the movie when she's on the run where we actually get to flesh out her character a bit. She is taken, though, around the end of the first act. What I like is that she is has a good scream, which helps Dick at different times. Melitessa is good as his mad scientist. He is quite creepy, to be honest. Stockdale and his crew are good. There's also this plumber portrayed by Guilfoyle. He is funny because he forces his way to complete his job that he's hired for and ends up just getting drunk in the wine cellar. The acting is fine for what the movie needed, in my opinion. So the last thing I'll do before a bit of trivia would be the filmmaking. I'd say the cinematography is fine. It's fairly static, but we do get a few locations. There are some car chases that weren't necessarily expecting here. We have a couple at a train station as well that are scenes, I mean. We have train cars where we have things taking place. The last would be the sanitarium, which ends up being our third act. It is creepy setting it there, and that works. There aren't a lot in the way of effects, but we also didn't need it. They do speed up the footage when Dick is being chased, and I mean, that's more of the time. And I mean, we actually still see this even after this point in cinema. That does add comedy for me. Other than that, I think the soundtrack didn't necessarily stand out. The version I watched on YouTube wasn't great, so it's hard for me to hold that against the movie just to be honest there. So I actually lied. There is no trivia on the IMDb page. So in conclusion, this is a movie that's basic in a story. That's not to say that it was bad though. We have Ruth who is trying to get away from this group of villains. The idea of being held in a sanitarium against your will is terrifying. Add in a mad doctor, which also makes it even worse. Thought Talmadge was fine as our lead. The rest of the cast was solid. I'd say filmmaking here was fine. None of it stands out aside from things that Talmadge did there as well. This movie just had its issues keeping my attention if I'm going to be honest. I had to consult what notes I took down to kind of flesh out different things here. That isn't necessarily a good thing when your runtime is just over an hour. This movie was just over average for me. There are good things here that just made it watchable, especially for the era. So my rating for Get That Girl is going to be a 5.5 out of 10. Don't need to do a spoiler section as there's not really enough for me to delve into outside of what I've already given to you. So let me get you over to one last break before I close out the show. Journey 
with a cinephile. I would like to welcome you back, and then just to close everything out here, if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have right on the show, you can send me that email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If there's anything that you send me you don't want right on the show, just let me know in that email. If you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews of anything that I'm watching that is horror or non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. What I will be posting over there is on both of them the movie posters of anything that I am reviewing. And if you follow my personal one, every now and then you might see some personal pictures if I ever post any because I tend to forget while I'm out and about. And just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. And for the next episode, I'm going to go back to doing the last Truck to the Twos for 1932 as I am actually going to be watching The Secret of the Blue Room. I've actually already watched it, as I said earlier. I just need to get everything written down and recorded and everything like that. And then I am going to go to the Gateway Film Center, I believe, to watch a 2022 release. But I don't know if it's going to be able to be in time where I can get everything prepped for it for here. So I'm just going to go ahead and save myself the trouble. And I'm going to watch The Cellar as the featured reviews there. And whatever I watch at the Gateway will just go on next episode. And then I will continue to keep watching mini reviews of different things. It'll probably be mostly summer series prep. Don't think there's anything else that I need to get you up to speed with here. So what I will say that in closing is that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and doing and have a great time out there. Thank you so much for listening. But this is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. And I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>